1: It was forbidden to talk about the existence of the Mafia, to reveal how it worked or name the main players. The Mafia demanded loyalty from its members to the very end. But when law enforcement started using modern surveillance techniques to incriminate mobsters, the list of those willing to cooperate with authorities began to grow longer and longer. It turns out mobsters do talk about the Mafia, even bosses, if it means saving their own skins. In this bonus episode of Mafia, we'll look at how the police and FBI were able to crack the code of Omerta. We'll look at some of the most high profile rats in mob history, and how the Mafia often ensured silence before these wise guys were even able to contemplate cutting a deal. Finally, we'll look at what makes mobsters flip despite knowing it could mean a contract on their head. This is Mafia. For a long time, the American public, even people within law enforcement, weren't aware that the Mafia really existed.
2: Remember that the the mob, Cosa Nostra, was a secret society. Um, the law of omerta, which everybody had to adhere to, uh, said, said essentially you can't mention the existence of the mob or testify about anybody else.
1: Ron Goldstock is a former mafia investigator.
2: And so there were inklings about it, DEA, more than any other federal agency at that time, the Bureau of Narcotics, knew somewhat about it because they saw the trafficking going back and forth between American organized crime and Italian organized crime groups.
1: Until the early 1960s, the real inner workings of the Mafia were largely unknown.
2: Uh, but by and large, no one knew really the the names of it. They, they saw the Union Siciliana to be part of um, what they considered the underworld. Um, but no one knew it uh, definitively until um, intercepted conversations in the mid and late 50s started disclosing names. Um, and even then, people did not, law enforcement did not know what it precisely meant. They heard phrases like Cosa Nostra, they heard Um, Kappa Regime, they heard boss, they heard crew. Um, But it was not in a context that they had understood. And then Valachi in 1963 came along and explained it. Um, A lot of people didn't believe Valachi.
1: Joseph Valachi was a soldier in Lucky Luciano's family, which eventually became known as the Genovese crime family. In 1963, he was called to testify before the Senate Committee on Organized Crime, which was led by Senator John McClellan.
2: I mean, Vellacci v- was the watershed. I mean, it's not as if without Valachi, um law enforcement would not have ultimately figured out what was occurring and what the electronic surveillance meant and what informants were saying. But Vellacci put it all together and gave a coherent picture of the mob earlier than it otherwise could have been done.
1: There had always been mobsters who collaborated with the police or the feds, mainly to reduce a looming prison sentence. But everyone thought they belonged to small criminal gangs, maybe working for someone higher up. Valachi's testimony was in a completely different league. He dropped a bombshell by revealing not only the existence of the mafia, but its structural hierarchy as well. All of a sudden... The conversations the FBI had been listening to started to make a lot more sense.
2: What Vellaci revealed was the structure of the mob. The fact that it was Cosa Nostra, the fact that it was different than the mafia, the fact that there were families, and families existed in various places around the country. He certainly didn't know all of them. Uh, In fact, when he was asked by the senator from Nebraska whether or not there was organized crime in Omaha, he sort of leaned over, talked to his lawyer, and everybody in Omaha was, what does he know? And he was just asking what Omaha was and where it was. Um, So there was a lot that he didn't know. He was parochial. He was regional. He he understood New York. Uh, He had heard about other uh, activities in other places. By and large, what he could do was give the structure of the mob, its rules, um, and its rituals um, uh, a a real face and an explanation and a coherence that otherwise wouldn't have existed.
1: Professor Robert Blakey is a former special attorney at the Department of Justice. It used to be that they would never
0: testify because they knew they were dead if they did. Balaji came forward and proved that you could testify against the mob and not get killed.
1: Valachi took an enormous risk by violating the law of Omerta so publicly. Mobsters hate rats, and the punishment for squealing is to shut them up. Forever. Mike Vecchioni is the author of Friends of the Family, about the inside story of the
3: Mafia Cobb case. Um... The idea that informants were killed, could be killed, are presently killed, is not far-fetched under any circumstance. Um, you know, there are individuals who turn up, for instance, in the trunk of, a, of a, an abandoned car. And then when you do the investigation, you figure out that this is a guy who was suspected of being what the mob calls a rat, um, or in fact was. Um, there are instances where um, those uh, those situations don't appear you know in the headlines and don't appear in the newspapers or on television to the extent that the Mafia cops investigation um, occurred. But it happens all the time. It really does. and um, you know it's um, it, it, it's the kind of thing where we as prosecutors and detectives, and other law enforcement personnel are very protective of the identity and the fact of, law, of, of us having um, informants.
1: It's not known what motivated Valachi to become an informant, but while he may have been the first mobster to publicly mention the mafia, he certainly wasn't the first to talk to the police. There's a long list of high-profile rats within the mafia who, over the years, ended up collaborating with the state. Not everybody was able to uphold the code of silence. The line between betrayal and loyalty was often very fine, and the price for crossing it could be very high. So when a mobster was cornered and felt he had nothing left to lose, the only hope was to save his own skin and start talking. Abraham Kidd twist Rells was a professional killer within the notorious Murder Incorporated the Mafia's Internal Enforcement Agency. In 1940, Rells was charged with murder and likely facing the death penalty. So he decided to flip. He started to cooperate with the feds and ratted out his boss, the infamous Albert Anastasia. It was a classic setup that made Rells flip. He became paranoid and thought there was no other way out. Nathan Ward is the author of Dark Harbor.
4: In 1940, he was in jail in the Bronx and he got wind of certain people in his organization talking to the DA and the sort of culture of snitching was going around the, uh, the, the jailhouse and it made him nervous. So he decided, uh, he wasn't going to be the last guy left in jail. When everyone else is talking, uh, and he sent a note uh, through his wife to um, a District Attorney O'Dwyer in Brooklyn that he was ready to talk. And this was a big deal, but they had no idea what a big deal it was until he arrived uh, in O'Dwyer's office in the middle of the night and he asked for a sandwich and he sat down. Uh, and as O'Dwyer remembered it later, uh, he had no idea there really even was organized crime at that moment. Everyone thought, especially the FBI, that crime was still local gangs, and no one had any idea that it was—you you had coast-to-coast uh, linkage among these groups, and especially the extent of the killing that was, that was going on in this organized way. Uh, he then put him in protective custody in a uh, hotel in Brooklyn Heights uh, and stenographers were brought in and what he, what he he just proceeded to talk for 11 days and it was so ghoulish that it sickened stenographers they had to like replace them in a in a group because they just had no idea the the uh, bail hooking and the shootings and the incinerations and the uh, just the all the horrors that he was describing were so unknown to these people.
1: Ernest Volkman is the author of Gangbusters,
0: and significantly, he remembered a lot of details about one Albert Anastasia, and among other things, he said. I know about Albert Anastasia personally strangling Peter Panto. Well, said the police, we've got him at last. This is it. Relis was the star witness. He was going to put all of Murder Incorporated away, including Albert Anastasia. And so they stashed him in a motel in Coney Island called the Half Moon motel, a Hotel up on the sixth floor. And he was a 24-hour police guard, five policemen. And just as everybody was thinking, okay, here's Albert, we've got him at last, he's going to go to the electric chair, that's it. Rellis is found dead. Somebody threw him out a window. Now, we now know that, in fact, what happened... The commission got really worried, because it's one thing to have some of these other jabones from very Incorporated go away. It's another thing for somebody like Albert Anastasia. That's, that's the problem.
1: So much for avoiding the death penalty. After Valachi's testimony in 1963, the state shifted the way they went after the mafia. Over the coming years, they were able to put more pressure on mobsters thanks to new investigative tools and laws. It started to become a real headache for the mob that one of their own could be cornered to such an extent that they would start talking. A lot of high-profile mobsters got whacked before they could even consider cutting a deal with the feds. Nobody was certain who among them could be trusted. In the 1980s, the Genovese family were unaware that Peter Savino, a trusted associate, had become an informant for the feds and was wearing a wire. Here's Selwyn Rab again.
5: It's important to understand uh, that for many years, decades, Gin Giganti escaped the uh, observation of the FBI. And what finally happened was Giganti, who during his decades, as a, both as a soldier, a capo, and later the boss of the family, under the slightest suspicion would kill anybody he thought might be a squealer, a weasel. And there was only one blunder that he made in his life. He trusted somebody by the name of Peter Savino, who wasn't even a made guy, But for some reason, um, one of the reasons was that Savino was bringing in millions to the family through something called a Windows Racket. Uh, Savino was a terrific earner. And Giganti began to trust him for years, even though the other members of other Moffs' families were suspicious of Savino. And that was the one blunder that Giganti made. Savino uh, got into trouble, became involved in an FBI murder investigation, and decided to cop out, take a plea, and cooperate. And he wore a wire. And for the first time, the FBI was able to get Giganti talking a bit. But Savino had first-hand evidence of, of uh, all the rackets, some of the rackets, That Giganti was involved in, and by implicating uh, Giganti, it was Savino, nobody else, who brought him down.
1: The most high-profile case was undoubtedly Joe Massino, boss of the Bonanno crime family. He flipped in 2003 to avoid the death penalty, and he took everyone down with him. It was a betrayal of epic proportions.
6: Well, a number of things happened. He was in a prison in Colorado, which is known here in the States as Flomax. It's in Florence, Colorado. And it is a prison that appears to be one story high. If you ever visit it, it's one story. And you wonder, well, how could it be a prison? Well, that's because the other 10 stories are underneath the ground. It's a very formidable place. It's a very barren place.
1: Pat Colgan, a former FBI special agent, tailed Messina for more than a decade.
6: It's where most of the death row federal inmates end up, or your high-profile terrorists and um, high-profile convicted criminals end up. So Joe was uh, sentenced to Florence, Colorado prison And he did not have an easy time uh, physically there. Uh, For the most part, Joe Messina had nowhere to go except to the death chamber. And therefore he decided to become a cooperating witness with no real promises from the government other than whatever he would Share and testify to in court would be known to a judge, and through Joe Messina's attorney, there could be a request made for reduction of sentence. That's all Joe Messina knew that the the court would allow a reduction of sentence application to be made. Now, if you're facing the death penalty, that's not a bad opportunity to have a reduction of sentence heard by a judge.
1: Jeffrey Sellette is an FBI special agent who was part of the team that brought down Joe Massino.
0: We had spent years of our lives, um, you know,
1: investigating this guy uh, and he then cooperates after he's convicted within a couple of hours, he's looking to save his own skin. So I think we'd all be disappointed. This is a guy who was supposed to be the last bastion of the mob. It just demonstrates where the mob sits today. If Joe Massino, who was known as the last Don, the man who really believed in the life, if it took him two hours or less than two hours from conviction to cooperate with us, tells you the state of the mob. They can't trust each other. They can't look at each other in the eye and feel that they have a comrade in arms They're all self-serving. And what do they do when they get arrested now? They cooperate. This is exactly where the law wanted the mafia to be. Mobsters had nowhere else to hide. As soon as the feds could charge them with a crime, the pressure to flip was intensified. Tony DiStefano is the author of King of Godfathers.
7: I think most people who have any hope of of wanting to see a life outside of prison will become a cooperator. That's the one thing, the light at the end of the tunnel you have when you're facing 20, 25 years of life, potential life in prison, uh, which some of these guys faced. You know, the only way you're going to be out of jail or have any hope of being a free man on the outside is to cooperate. And people know that well. Not everybody does that. The old guard, some people are very loyal, they won't fold. But, you know, not everybody's that strong. Not everybody's wedded to that kind of uh, code of conduct, uh, as, it, as it were. You know. Emerita, the old, you know, mythical code of you know, silence in the mafia is really kind of shredded. It's really no longer a factor. People are lining up to be witnesses. and You know, the government knows it. The wise guys know it. This is why they're more cautious these days.
1: The Mafia's rule on omertà had been violated so many times, it simply didn't carry the same weight it once did. For mobsters faced with a lengthy jail sentence, it turned out that it was far better to be a witness than a defendant. Even if that risked being executed, it was still worth the risk. This is the final bonus episode of season two of Mafia. We will return with season three in twenty nineteen. Thanks for your support. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Booms Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz, with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabengwa. David McNabb is the series' creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Talkspace for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And if you've got some time... Give us a review.